Well, it's good to be back, and uh, it's been a long time. The uh, I could say a lot of things as way of introduction, and a lot of thanks that we uh, have to express to each one of you for the way that you've loved our family and the way that the Lord has used this church to shape and mold and form who we are today and what God has called us to do. But what I want to say is that we love you and we're grateful to you. And this morning I'm excited about the text that is in front of us. We're going to talk about true community, about the marks of a spirit-filled community. And one of the things that excites me about this particular text, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and open them up to Acts chapter 4. The text this morning is Acts 4, 32 through 511, or you can find the passage on page 912 of the Pew Bible. But what excites me about this passage this morning is I believe that this church, it's not a perfect church. I know that there are things that are very much imperfect. And if you're a member here, you're probably aware of those things, probably troubled by those from time to time. But this is a picture of God at work. Uh, This is a bit of a taste of what it means to be part of that perfect, beautiful, amazing community that God has called us into. I'm currently uh, leading a church that's almost four years old. And so where you all are is where we look to be. We are excited. We're anticipating. We're longing to be uh, where you are today. And of course, you're longing to be uh, even in, in other places to grow even further and to grow even deeper. So my hope this morning is uh, we know that one thing will happen for certain. Whenever we go to God's word, we're challenged. So we don't have to wonder whether or not God's going to challenge us with his word. But my hope also is that you'd be encouraged, that you'd be encouraged to look around and to see how God is at work, how God has been faithful to his promises, how just as he told Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against this church, that you will see that to be a true promise that God has made to this local body as well. So with that being said, I invite you to follow along as I read. This is God's word, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why have Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church, upon all who heard of these things. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's ask the Lord if he would open our hearts to receive his word together this morning. Please pray with me. Loving God, we do ask this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On October the 15th, 2008, I was, we were living here in Fort Worth. I was the campus minister at TCU with RUF, and I was 35 years old. And uh, for a couple of years previous to that, I had had this great honor and privilege that, um, to go into the Pi Kappa Phi house at TCU and to lead a, a Bible study for that particular fraternity. And I'd grown close to a number of their members and developed a friendship and um, so on this particular date, this unique honor was bestowed upon me. I received an email a couple of weeks before uh, this particular evening. And the, the email essentially summarized their um, thankfulness for me. That they basically said, hey, you have been an important part of our life and the Lord has used us, used you in our lives. And so we want to do something that doesn't really ever happen to 35-year-old men. We want to make you a brother. We want to initiate you into the Pi Kappa Phi fraternity. And so I was sitting in the Robert Carr Chapel on this particular evening, and I was uh, sitting there with another older guy. We were going to be initiated as what's known as an alumni initiate. And so we went through the entire ritual. And so after it was all said and done, they taught me the secret handshake, which I soon forgot, and they said all the words that... People say at those particular kind of ceremonies, and I was officially made a brother. I officially became a member of Pi Kappa Phi fraternity. Well, the thing about it, though, is, is that I know that to this day that I am a member because I received their quarterly uh, announcements. They have this quarterly magazine that goes out, has my name on it, has my address on it, because I'm one of the brothers. But one of the things that is also true is that Really, if you want to get right down to it, all I am is a card-carrying member of Pi Kappa Phi. Like, technically, I'm a member. But really and truly, I'm not. I didn't go through the pledge ship process with any of those guys. Um, I never went to one single party. I never paid any dues. And so, really, if you're truly one of the brothers, you would have to say that I'm nothing more than a fraud. I'm a pretender. I'm not really one of the brothers. Now, they, they, uh, I think they wouldn't probably say that. But that's essentially who I am and my relationship to that body. I say that because that story kind of sets the stage as we do two things together this morning. First, we have to start with ourselves. 
And then we have to talk and think about the body as a whole. But before we think about the body, we need to first think about ourselves. And so this is the question that I posed to you this morning. Is what is your relationship to the local church? What is your relationship to the community of Christ? Are you a card-carrying member? Are you a casual member? Or are you a committed member? Are you truly part of God's people? Is this so much a part of the fabric of your existence that it's not so much about me, but it's about who we are together? Are you truly part of God's people? And then the second question is, is what kind of church is this? What kind of church is Fort Worth Presbyterian Church? And I know what kind of church it is. It's a church that deeply desires that it would embody the true community that God calls his church to be in his word. Now, the thing is, is when we look at the passage before us this morning, we get a glimpse of what true community is supposed to look like. This is not a perfect church. And one of the things that's hard about reading Acts, especially the first couple of passages, namely Acts 2 and Acts 4, is that we start to get this utopian picture of the church. And you're going to see that that's not what's going on here at all this morning. But we do get a glimpse of what it looks like to be part of a spirit-filled community. And not only do we get a picture of what it looks like, but we also are told this morning how that can become a reality in our own lives, how that can be a reality in this particular church. And so this morning, I want us to look together at three marks, three characteristics of true community, three characteristics of a spirit-filled church. And so the first characteristic, the first mark of a spirit-filled church of true community is that it is a close-knit community. It's a close-knit community. It's a community that has been knit closely together. One of the things you notice back in Acts chapter 2 is that the thing that was true about these new believers, these ones that the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon and were being brought together, one of the things we know is that they were all kinds of people from all kinds of places. It was a very diverse bunch of people. But that they had come together and they had been closely knit together and they loved each other. They couldn't get enough of each other. They were constantly meeting in one another's homes and they were praying together and they were eating together and they were feasting together and they were crying and groaning together. The thing that they were is they were together. They were constantly together. They were closely knit together. If you look in verse 32, we... We we are told a little bit about this dynamic. It says, now the full number of those who believed, and by now it's probably somewhere around 20,000 members in this new church. Now the full number of all those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were of one heart and soul. There was this deep oneness that marked them. There was this deep oneness that characterized them. It was this way of saying they had real friendship. When they gathered together, they saw the other members of the church as truly and really their friends, the ones that they loved. They loved one another. They were connected to one another. They were committed to one another because they were closely knit to one another. You know, think about it for a minute, what it would be like to go into one of these homes of these new excited church members. And think about all how your senses would be grabbed as you walked into the door. Think about the smells that would have been characteristic of these gatherings and the sights and the sounds. You know, one of my favorite places to go when I was a child was my great-grandmother's home. We would go there after church on Sundays to have a family feast. It was Granny Annie's house, and Granny Annie could make the best 
fried chicken in the world. Along with my grandmother and her twin sister. And they would all be busy in the kitchen. And the, and the smells that would be coming out of that kitchen would just knock you down. And, you know, rice and gravy and biscuits and gravy and fresh fruit and fresh vegetables and green beans. The kind that aren't good for you that have all that fat that's been kind of soaked into it. And you could just smell the aroma. And then we would gather around the table. It was a crowded table. You know, it wasn't one of those places where you had a lot of room because we were there together. And there would be this conversation as a child. I just remember watching and listening. I remember seeing that one of the things that was true of this particular community was that it was a happy place to be. That everyone was glad to be at Granny and his house because it was such a marvelous place to be. She loved us and we loved one another, not perfectly. Think about what the gathering here would have been like. That you would have walked in and you would have smelled the smells of, of great food that was cooking on the griddle. Food that was frying in the frying pan. Food that was cooking on the grill. Think about the sounds that you would hear. Sounds of laughter. Sounds of conversation. Sounds of singing. Sounds of prayer. At times you would have heard sounds of crying and groaning. But you would have seen that the people that were doing that weren't doing it by themselves. They were doing it together. That there was this community aspect. Think about the sights you would have seen and these smiling faces. This joy that radiated from their faces. And this is what marked this new church. This true community, this spirit-filled community is this. They were closely knit together. We read things like that and perhaps this is not your experience in the church. And sometimes it's, it's things like this that just really get under our skin. It's things like this that aggravate us more than anything. Because we don't feel like this is really what our experience in the church is all about. We think that the church is a place where we feel uh, invisible. And sometimes we feel expendable. And we wonder if anybody even knows we're there. We wonder if anybody even cares. We see these types of descriptions and they make us jealous. And they make us sad. And they make us wonder, can it ever be different? Can it ever change? And some of us are so cynical and we believe that no, it never can change. But then perhaps we are brave enough to ask the question, okay, if I want it to change, then what am I going to do about it? And of course, our, our first, I guess, reflex is, well, I need to be more committed, right? I need to, I need to work harder. I need to, I need to get after it more. I need to, to, to really be more devoted and more dedicated. But what was the secret to this true community, this close-knittedness that they enjoyed? Well, it wasn't their hard work. Not that they weren't working hard, but that wasn't the secret. Look in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. You see, the reason they had been closely knit together is because grace, grace was upon them all. Community means to be united with, to be together with. And in community, there's something that you're uniting around. There's something that's binding you together. And so we have to ask the question, what was it that united them together? It wasn't their favorite football team. It wasn't their hobbies. It wasn't their race or ethnicity. It wasn't their socioeconomic standing. Those aren't the things that united them together. There was one thing that united them together. It was the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus was uniting them together. Look at the first part of verse 33. How was God's grace upon them? Well, we're told the first part. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You see, they were praying to Jesus and they were preaching Jesus and they were teaching Jesus 
And they were completely dependent upon Jesus. The roots of their lives were sinking deeper and deeper into Jesus. Who he was, what he had done, what he was doing, and what he promises to do. That's what was binding them together. That's what was knitting them together. They gathered regularly for the reason of drinking deeply of God's grace. They were always putting themselves in the way of his grace. Because they wanted to know Jesus. This is a bit of a kind of off-the-path illustration, but I came across this little video clip of Steve Harvey. And you may know Steve Harvey. He's kind of the talk show host. He does that little funny show with the, the kids and things. And he was in this particular show, he was interviewing Snoop Dogg. And Snoop Dogg has apparently teamed up with Martha Stewart, which is a very strange combination. And they have this thing called uh, Martha and Snoop's Potluck Dinner Party. And uh, so you've got two fairly uh, colorful characters here. And Steve Harvey said that when he heard that season two of Martha and Snoop's potluck dinner party was about to come out, that the first thing he said was, Martha who? That there had to be a mistake. And then Snoop Dogg says this. He says, Steve, I'm going to tell you the truth, man. It's amazing how people are the same when you get them together. It don't matter where you was raised, what color you are. If you put two people in the same room and they get to hanging out and chilling with each other, they start to love the same things. Anytime somebody comes on our show, you're going to have a good meal. You're going to talk about some good things. And you're going to see two two people that you wouldn't expect to be together have the time of their lives. This is what life is all about. Loving the person that is next to you. Now, you know, if that's something that Snoop Dogg says, you know, if that's what Snoop Dogg and Martha's potluck dinner party looks like, how much more uh, should be expected of the true community of God's people? I don't want to, I can't say much, but I'll say briefly. You know, one of the things that people often do as a minister, you do hear, you hear mostly about the things people don't like. I'll go ahead and just tell you that right up front. You don't, you hear, one of the things you hear a lot of is what people don't like. Um, and a lot of the th- times the conversations go something like this, you know, I'm feeling disconnected. We're starting to think about maybe changing churches, something like that. And they tell you the problems of the church that you're pastoring. And, um, <laughs> then, uh, you know, you gently start to probe like, are you part of a community group? They're like, we, you know, we're not part of a community group. You know, you know, that they're not there on Sunday cause you hardly ever see them. But, and you know, you just start to think like, think about basketball. Like I'm terrible at basketball, but I never dribble or practice. And I don't even own a basketball. And you're like, well, no wonder you're not really very good at basketball. Cause you're never actually practicing or playing it. And I don't mean rudely, but one of the things that, you know, the first things is, is if you don't feel closely knit with the community that you're a part of. The, the first question you have to ask is, are you showing up? Are you there? You know, um, are you making yourself available to be part of that community so that people can get to know you? But the second mark of a spirit-filled community, of a true community, is that it's not only a closely knit community, but it's a caring community. Uh, Look in verse 34. Very first part. This is amazing. There was not a needy person among them. That's an amazing statement. That's one of those Bible statements that we just are like, okay, let's go on to the next part of the verse. Let's pause there for a minute before we move on. There was not a needy person among them. Nobody had needs that were going unmet. Can you imagine that? That's, that's pretty hard to imagine. 
Um, why was it that there was not a needy person among them? Well, we're told. Look in verse 32, going back to the very beginning. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Look in verse 34. And so therefore there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, if you're listening to what I'm saying here, at least I'd say quite a few of us in the room, and I would be, I'm going to be at the head of the line. This is very uncomfortable. This is a very uncomfortable part of the Bible. Our first thought is, is that this is like one of the sacrificial laws in the Old Testament. We're glad, we don't know why they don't apply anymore today, but our pastor does, and we're glad they don't apply anymore today, and so we're good. And we don't know why it, we don't know what's going on here. We don't know where this came from. We know that this is not capitalism, okay? And we know that capitalism is right. We don't know why, but our pastor does. And so we're going to stick with this. And so we read this and we're thinking, this is starting to make us sweat, but we're not sweating that much because we're just going to move on to the rest of the passage. Um, But we need to stop and see what's going on here. Because if you really think about it, the first thing that you might start to say is that, man, that sounds like communism. That sounds like socialism. But what I want to suggest to you is that this is not communism, but this is caring. And this is not socialism. This is sharing. Very different things. You see, there's nothing that was wrong with owning private property in the New Testament church. There was no law against it. There was no ordinance that said you cannot own private property. You're going to re- we read about it later in the book of Acts where people owned houses and they didn't sell them and they invited people over. They had to have houses to meet in. And it also is not an instance where everybody was getting their fair share. It wasn't that at the end of the church, we're going to ask everybody to drop their car keys in a common basket in the back. We're going to sit down for a few minutes and then everybody's going to, in an orderly fashion, grab a set of keys and and go and find your car in the the, uh, parking lot. Because everybody's going to have it in common. It wasn't that. It wasn't about fair share. It wasn't we're going to take one piece of pie and we're going to evenly divide it out so everybody has the same size piece of pie. That's not what's going on here. What is going on here? What's going on here? Well... Nobody was being made to do any of these things. It was totally voluntary. So please hear that. It was totally voluntary. They did it because they wanted to do it. They didn't do it because they had to do it. There was no law in the Bible that said you must do this. And the division of resources was not based on fairness, but it was based upon people's need. They were distributed as people had needs. So it was need-based. It was, it was, it was determined by needs. Now, I think that the first thing that we might do, if we're honest, is we might say, I was starting to get a little sweat forming on the brow there. I thought you were going to tell me I needed to go sell all my stuff, you know, and I got some pretty cool stuff. And but now I feel better about that because it was totally voluntary and I'm going to not volunteer to do that. And um, I'm glad they did it. They're a lot better Christian than me, but I'm not going to do it. And what I want to suggest to you is that maybe before we do the like, that maybe we should dive a little deeper. Because what I want you to notice is what the gospel had done to this community. It was changing their attitude toward people and things. Essentially, it's this, that they loved people more than they loved their things. And I know that I can be guilty of this, and I assume you can as well, that we can be very guilty of loving our things a lot more than we love people. Isn't that true? 
We love our things. But you see, they loved people. They had chosen to have everything in common. They didn't consider the things they had to belong to themselves. They, they considered it to be part of what we have together, not part of what I have as my own. And then we get an example of how the gospel was changing not only their attitudes, but their actions. Look in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's an example of Barnabas, this hero of Luke's, the son of encouragement. And he's, let me show you what it looked like. Let me show you, let me take a person in, the, in this community, a person in this congregation, and show you how the gospel was changing his life. And he sold it. He said, there's people that have needs here. And I don't need this property nearly as bad as they need it. The resources that come from it. And so this man went out and sought to encourage his brothers and his sisters. Um, there's a lot to be said about this, but I want to say something quickly, kind of as a way of application. You know, one of the things we can be guilty of is we can hear these Bible verses like from 1 John chapter 3, uh, where John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he goes on and he says, By this we know, love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And we think, you know, you ask somebody, ask you, how much do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And you say, well, I love them a lot. I'd die for them. The reality is that hardly any of us, I would imagine, now that could change, I don't know what the future holds, but based on normal American kind of Christianity, the chances that we're going to be put in a place where we have to die for one of our brothers and sisters is, is not that likely. And so that's one of the reasons that we like to say things like that about ourselves. It's this, you know, it's this offer that we know will never be cashed in on. But the next thing that John says is this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed in the truth. It's not just that we'd be willing to die for someone, it's that we'd be willing to live for them. It's that we'd be willing to give to them. So those are the first two marks of a spirit-filled community. That it's a closely-knit community, it's a caring community. The next one is a curveball, but it's also a crooked community. It's also a crooked community. Um, It's a community that's bent in on itself. It's a community that's bent away from God's desire for the community as a whole. It's a community that's drawn towards self-seeking and self-serving. That's what the community also is. Um, A friend of mine, Jean LaRue, has this statement that I've borrowed from him a number of times. It's a statement about church membership. And if you think of the, the vow, the very first vow... The very first promise that you make when you joined this church, uh, the question was, um, do you believe yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? It's a question about you. And Jean LaRue has a statement that kind of goes along with that. He says this, church membership is like joining the mafia. You have to be bad to get in. You see, you can't be part of the community if you're not crooked. You have to be crooked and you have to know you're crooked or you can't get in. 
You see, you can be great and you can be good and all those wonderful things. And that's the strange thing about the church is you can say, I'm a really good person. And they can say, well, you can't be part of here. Because you have to be bad to get in. You have to be crooked. Um, and so then if you think about that, well, what do you think happens when you get a bunch of crooked people together in the same place? What do you think happens when you get a lot of self-serving, self-seeking people all into the same place? You guessed it, a lot of bad things. A lot of bad things happen. When you get bad people together, bad things happen. That's one of the things I like about Luke and, and the Bible as a whole is because the Bible is honest. It doesn't make up stories and fables. It tells the truth. Look what he says. He contrasts Barnabas, the son of encouragement, with some other members in the church. In verse 1 it says of chapter 5, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. This is a very, this is kind of complicated passage, and we can get lost here and wonder what's going on here. So let me try to explain it. Uh, I will say this. This is kind of the New Testament parallel to what happened in Joshua with Achan. The same language is used in both accounts. But... What's going on here is apparently Ananias and Sapphira saw that this was the practice of the church to have everything in common together and to meet the needs of those that needed needs being met. And so they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to sell our property and we're going to give everything that we receive on the sale of our property. We're going to give all of that money to the local church. We're going to lay it at the apostles' feet. We're going to tell the apostles to do whatever it is they want to do with, the, with all of the money that we receive from the sale of the property. Now, I don't know what happened. Perhaps it was something like this. So they enter into this agreement, the sales agreement, and they ended up getting more money than they thought they were going to get for the property, perhaps. that They were like, wow, we were only thought we were going to get this much, and I'm pretty sure Peter and John only thought we were going to get this much, and I imagine if we gave the church this much, they'd be pretty ha- happy about that. And nobody besides you and me knows that we got that much. And so they, 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 they scheme together and they say, how about this? How about we keep part of it for us and we give the rest of it to them? They'll think that we gave all of it away. You and I'll be the only ones that know that we didn't give it all away. And then not only that, we'll get all the praise for not giving it all away because they'll think that we gave it all away. And uh, so Peter comes and asks Ananias some questions about it. And essentially he says, I got a question to ask you, Ananias. Before you sold the property, did all of it belong to you? Yes, it did. Did anybody force you to sell the property? Did anybody put a gun to your head and say, you have to sell the property? Or did you get to do what you wanted to do with it? Of course, the answer to that was, I got to do what I wanted to do. But then Peter says, so why is it that you did what you did? Why did you make this promise and renege on it? Why why are you guilty of two sins? There's a double sin going on here. The first is the sin of dishonesty. That he's lying. But he's not just lying to the people. Peter says you're lying to God. And the second sin is the sin of deceit. It's the sin of hypocrisy. That he's two-faced. He's saying one thing. And he's doing something altogether different. Now, we read that. And if you've got a heartbeat, then you have to, your heart has to go out to Ananias and Sapphira. You know, I, th- I think if you know yourself, you have to, your heart has to go out to them a little bit. Because we're not all sons of encouragement, are we? We're not all Barnabases. And we wish we were. 
And I was, I'll quickly put it this way. I think this is, in a sense, the way that we wrestle with this particular account maybe is something like this. I wish that we were all more like Bar- I wish I was more like Barnabas, but the bottom line is that I'm not. I'm just not as good as Barnabas is. And I'm a lot more like Ananias and Sapphira, and I know that I'm a bad person, and I know that God wants me to do good things, and I know that I'm supposed to be selfless, and I know that I'm selfish, and I know that I need to change. And Lord... I know that you're a good God and that you're gracious and I'm really sorry about this and I want to bring my sin to you and I want to ask if you would please forgive me for it and I'm going to start trying to be more like Barnabas and um, I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer now. And maybe we say it with a little more sincerity than that, but that's essentially the formula that we bring and that's why what happens next is very surprising because we wonder, like God's response is something altogether different than the way that we would respond. Look what happens. Look how God responds to this particular thing. Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear come upon all who heard of it. What happened was, because of this sin, God judged Ananias. He judged him and he died. Then Peter goes through the same conversation with Sapphira, asks her all the same questions, gives her the opportunity to come clean on it. She doesn't come clean, and the same thing happens to her. She falls down and dies too. And the same response to the people happens in both deaths. Deaths. There was this great fear that came upon them all. And we know we're not supposed to say this because this feels irreverent, but what we're thinking here is, is that, man, what in the world's going on here? This seems like an overreaction. Good grief. I mean, it wasn't like they murdered a bunch of people. I mean, they gave a bunch of money away. They should get partial credit. I mean, where's the partial credit? Where's the grading on the curve? This seems like an overreaction. It really, we feel that, don't we? If you don't feel that, then you're probably not reading the passage. We feel that. But I think we need to have quickly these three things, quick three things that color this, this sense of overreaction that we feel. The first thing is, is that we get to see something in this passage that thankfully we hardly ever get to see. Most of the time, what we get to see is God's mercy being poured out upon his people. But this time, we get to see what happens when the gloves are taken off. We get to see what happens when God's mercy doesn't prevent his judgment. We get to see how God really and truly feels about sin. That sin's a big deal to him. He doesn't think it's a small thing. He doesn't think it's something that we should you know, not get worked up over. He thinks it's a big deal. The second thing we need to think about is, what is the sin out of all the sins that seem to trouble Jesus the most in the Gospels? You know, when you see Jesus, he's eating with the, fair, he's eating with, excuse me, with the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. And the Pharisees are getting, and the, and the workers of the law, the religious people are getting real worked up about how nice he is to them. But when Jesus starts to really lay it down, he typically lays it down with the religious people, with the Pharisees. And what's the number one sin that almost always is on the tip of his tongue? And it's hypocrisy, isn't it? Now think about this for a minute. What's the sin that perhaps has done the most damage to the community of God's people throughout history? I mean, I'd suggest to you that perhaps it's hypocrisy. People don't want to be part of the church. You ask somebody that's not part of the church why they don't want to be part of the church, and I, I could almost guarantee that in the first five reasons, and it's probably the first one, they're going to say, because I don't want to hang around with a bunch of two-faced people that say one thing and do something different. And so that might, I would suggest to you that that's the other reason that this is a big deal and not an overreaction. The last thing I would say is this. How could something that caused the Father 
to turn his face away from the joy of his eternal heart, from his only begotten son. How could something that caused that ever not be a big deal? It's a big deal. You see, it's a big deal because that's why Jesus died on the cross. And the cross shows us two things. It shows us how God feels about our sin. But it also shows us how God feels about us. Sinners. Crooked people. Broken people. You see, the message of the cross is that God invites crooked, broken people bent in on themselves to come and be part of this new community. A community that's filled with the Spirit. A community that transforms them and changes them from the inside out. That makes them altogether different. That makes them altogether new. And what I'd say to you is that there's no better place for crooked people to be than in the community of God's people. Coming there and coming out into the open and constantly feeding upon Christ. I'll I'll close with this. We are, as I said, a young church in Dallas. And um, this amazing miracle, I would say, has happened at our church. We have a large contingent of young men who are addicts who have recently come out of a halfway house. They've just recently graduated um, in the last few years or perhaps even weeks or months, or some of them are still in it, from a program that is helping them to overcome their addiction to alcohol and drugs. And these folks are pretty, you know, sometimes they're pretty rough around the edges. And uh, they come in, and I can remember recently we had a couple of these guys that were in our new members class, and I was just saying, hey, why don't everybody go around and introduce themselves? It was more like, do you, you know, tell us something you like to do. Do you like to hunt or fish or do you, where do you live or who's your favorite team? This poor one guy, he is brand new. He, he showed up. He, he had come to church and he knew he wasn't supposed to be at church, but he wanted to be at church and he wanted to be part of this community. And so he's like, what do I need to do? I'm all in. Tell me what you need me to do. And I'm like, all right, let's hold down. We haven't even started the class yet. Let's. Just sit down. So I asked, he unfortunately had to go first because I asked him the question. And he started saying, basically, I'm a really bad person and do a lot of sinful things. And I've been an addict and started unpacking his heart. And I wanted to say, you know, that's not what we really were doing here. We're just saying we like to play, you know, ping pong. But um, <laughs> but he started unpacking it. And then we got together and I went through the vows with him. And man, he couldn't he couldn't talk enough about vow number one, about how crooked he was. And what he can't understand is why we would want him to be part of our community. Because we're just as crooked as he is. And the thing about crooked people that are coming to our church is crooked people bring other crooked people. That's the most amazing thing. They do. The visitors bring visitors and, and they keep bringing their friends. And, and there's this one guy that I met with and uh, we sat down for coffee and he's like, I like God, but I don't like Jesus. And um, he had a problem with Jesus and he has a, a, a checker pass as well. I said, why don't you just come and, you know, kind of check things out and be part of what we're doing? Why don't you get into a community group? And so he got into a community group and he sent a text message to the leader uh, recently that the leader shared with me that basically said, thank you so very much for inviting me to be part of this community group. It has far exceeded my expectations. You know what they're doing? Regular stuff. (laughs) Nothing fancy. All the regular things y'all are doing. That's what they're doing. And guess what God's doing? What he always does. He's working. Let me pray. Father, we do ask that you would use this word in our lives for our good and for your glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.